there, I'm Adam Rissman and welcome to Inside Intercom. So often on this show, we dive into very specific disciplines or challenges, like retaining customers, product design, engineering leadership, or going to market. But when we can, it's great to zoom out and hear from a founder on the show, so we can get the big picture story behind what it takes to build and then grow a company successfully. This is one of those episodes, as I'm joined by Metrics founder, Josh Pigford. Metrics, if you're not familiar, is a subscription analytics and business insights tool. It plugs into Stripe, Recurly, Braintree, and more products just like that. Similar to so many other startups, Josh actually built the product simply to solve a business need he had at his previous company, Temper. He's incredibly candid about the roller coaster ride that's been Metrics to date. The company took off early, which led to two rounds of VC funding, but then after a confluence of events that we cover in our chat, he found himself with just eight weeks of runway left on the clock. Fast forward eight months, though, after a series of changes, and the company not only reached profitability, but has been sustainable ever since. If you enjoy Josh's story, he's regularly sharing his insights through two avenues. First, his founder's journey blog over at the Barometrics site, and two, his own podcast, Founder Chats. And for more content from us, we've now published more than 120 Inside Intercom conversations to date. You can find them all on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and wherever else you tune in for podcasts these days. Okay, now let's hop in the studio, where I'm joined on the line by Josh Pickford. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Josh, welcome to Inside Intercom. It's great to have you. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for starting your week with us. Uh, just to get us started, can you give us the cliff notes of your career to date? I mean, what led you to start Bear Metrics and what problem are you solving there? Yeah, so so cliff notes of career is that my I have a background in graphic design. That's what I went to school for. And around that time, so this was early 2000s that I was in at college. And at that same time, I was also just teaching myself programming because I wanted to build stuff. And so that sort of set in motion this 15 year me just exploring things mm-hmm. as far as building things on the internet. Yep. And Bear Metrics is sort of the current incarnation of me figuring out how to make stuff. <laughs> so Bear Metrics itself started, gosh, five years this October. Congrats. So so about five years ago, so 2013, I had a couple of other SaaS products in the sort of survey space. And at the time, getting things related to SaaS metrics was was this just sort of exercise in futility with lots of Excel spreadsheets or hacking together these little internal tools or the other extreme of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on some like massive analytics software right. with, you know, this enterprise sales thing. So there wasn't anything at the time and I needed it. So I built it and kind of threw it out there, not thinking it was going to be much of anything. I had no intention of like stopping the survey software right. stuff. This was like, hey, this will, you know, I'll have this for a year or two and something will come along and, you know, I won't do it anymore. But, <laughs> you know, five years later here, we are still here. Amazing. Yeah. So you, you built it as a, as a tool for yourself, like you said, and you did just yep. just put it out there. What was that early reception like that made you feel like this could actually be the business? So with the survey software, I I, I had made the mistake of kind of not differentiating myself enough from say survey monkey and mm-hmm. you know the whatever 10,000 other survey apps that are out there and charge too little and i just made the this series of mistakes on the business side so that when when bare metrics launched in you know 
my first customer was a $250 a month customer compared to, you know, I didn't even have a $250 plan on these, <laughs> the, the survey software. And so it was, it was just like, oh, wow. Okay. This people need this. And it was so basic. Like the very first version of bare metrics was unbelievably simple or simplistic, I guess, more specifically. And, and the fact that somebody would pay 250 bucks a month and it hardly even did anything to me validated a lot. And then from there, you know, within a few months, it had surpassed the survey products that I had as far as revenue goes. And so at that point I realized, okay, there's, there's something more here than these other things that I've got. Uh, let me just keep throwing my weight after this and we'll see what happens. Yeah. It really seems like this is a, is a case for just getting something out there and getting it in the hands of potential customers as early as possible, rather than getting stuck in that ongoing cycle of validation pre-release that we see so often. Is this something that you've done with with all your products previous to this or was this your first time taking that approach? So specifically, my goal with Barometrics was when I first started it was I'm getting this thing out the door as fast as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. um, one, because I didn't think anything of it. I, I didn't think it was going to be anything. And then two, I didn't want, I, I realized I had made so many assumptions on previous products that would just drag out the launch of it right. for, you know, say it took six plus months or something to, to launch one of the previous products. And, and then I, you know, you make all these mistakes because you make all these assumptions and with bare metrics, I wanted to make as few assumptions as possible because I figured I would be wrong. And so that was the goal with bare metrics for sure was let me just throw this out there, get it wrong, but get feedback from, from paying customers on what it should do instead. And I needed something for a customer to pay for so that I could get validation from a paying customer versus say, you know, I have thousands of emails from people who are on some like free beta and like their feedback's maybe useful, but not terribly valid because they're already not invested in the product at all. Right. Right. So exactly. I want to have paying customer feedback as soon as possible. So I, so I believe the first version of, of the software, actually about two months later, you, you scrapped the, the code and started over, right? Was that basically the, yeah. the result of this process? Exactly, right? <laughs> so so I, I launched this. So I had the uh, idea in October, mid-October 2013, launched it mid-November. And that was even, it wasn't even like I worked on it for a month. I really probably worked on it a, a total of a week. I mean, I had two other SaaS products I was running. I was also doing some consulting stuff too. So I really had spent about a week's worth of time building the thing. So then in January, a couple months later, yeah, it was, I had all this feedback. I realized, you know, people wanted it to do a lot more than I had in mind, mm -hmm. which was fine because, you know, it should have done more. It was essentially just a static dashboard. I, I literally, you know, we're talking like code here. It was a, this Rails project and I just completely scrapped it and started a new Rails project from scratch and rebuilt the thing. And it did a whole lot more. And it wasn't like, it wasn't anything good. I'm still, I'm not a, I'm not a good developer, but I know enough to sort of be dangerous. And, and that was the case there too. Well, I think, I think it was Reed Hoffman who said that you, if you're satisfied with the first version of your, your product, you've, you've waited too long to Watch release too it. too long. Yep. Yeah. And, and that was, I, and I knew that was the case too. I had, I had actually probably recently had read that, that quote from him and it was so spot on. And, and I, and I very much was not. <laughs> Not proud or happy of at least the code side of things. Yeah. So within six months or so, I mean, you're, I think, at around 16,000 MRR. Things mm -hmm. are going pretty smoothly. One thing that I think a lot of listeners are always curious about because it goes in a bunch of different directions is how did you approach getting your your earliest customers in those days? I mean, you said you had a $250 a month customer right off the bat. Yeah. How did, how did they come to you? And I imagine that was not sort of a a scalable model that for, from that first no. experience. 
Well, so I think at the time, if you think of in 2013, you think of the of the sort of nasty terms like growth hacking mm-hmm. and like all of the sort of sleazy things people do to get new customers. Yeah. In 2013, I don't feel like that stuff was as prevalent. And so getting the first few customers, I, I wasn't trying anything weird. It was, I'm posting stuff on Twitter, just sort of almost live tweeting me building this thing. Yeah. And that in and of itself generated the first handful of customers. And I mean, also I've been, I've been building stuff on the web since really the late nineties. So I already have somewhat of a community. Right. To reach out to around. Yeah. You've established trust with all these people basically. Right. And and it's not even like a, Oh, I wouldn't have said, I wouldn't say that I had like built an audience per se. I just knew other founders Mm -hmm. because I'm a founder who has been on the web for two decades. So that, Right there got me a, a decent chunk of new customers just because there were other founders who happened to use Stripe and they wanted the same thing yeah. too. And that's that's way different than than a cold email because it's not it's not cold outreach when you have that relationship. At all. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I did not send any cold emails yeah. to get the thing off the ground. I didn't have an email list that I had built up. I don't think I even sent any emails at all to anybody. It was, I'm tweeting stuff. And you have to remember that Stripe itself as a company was this is 2013 is when they sort of had gotten out of their beta phase and were just starting to see some traction. So like when I when I launched Bear Metrics, I think they were 90 employees and they had not whatever their office was at the time, they hadn't been in very long. Mm-hmm. I mean there there are a thousand people yeah. now. But, you know, in 2013 they were there were just a handful of them basically and they were also loved the idea of bare metrics. And I mean, it was bare metrics was the first really big thing built on Stripe. Like nobody had built anything that's really sort of complex thing based off the the Stripe API. So they loved sharing the thing. I mean, if you emailed Stripe asking for analytics or whatever, they would point you to bare metrics. I mean, there was this sort of organic thing that just happened because Mm -hmm. of the right timing and people just sharing it around. Like there was no really intentional stuff going on which isn't very helpful from a, <laughs> hey, how can, I, how can I apply this to my business? I don't know that you can, other than I do think maybe I was cognizant of the fact that like this is sort of like a unique opportunity where Stripe isn't going to always be this small and they happen to be taking off right now and I happen to be able to hop on that wave. Yeah, that's, in, that's incredibly fortunate from a timing perspective. But I, but I right. do think this idea of, of what sort of platforms can you launch onto and build onto that have an audience is still very mm-hmm. applicable from a, a builder perspective. Totally. And I think though the dangerous part is becoming completely reliant on that platform. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the mistakes we made was not expanding outside of Stripe fast enough. Mm-hmm. I was going to um, ask how you mitigated that. Yeah. So, I mean, there was some stuff wrapped up in, you know, we, which we can get into this too, but the funding that we took came with a few caveats and, you know, we sort of had to stay on that exclusive to Stripe for a little bit. And so I do think that was probably one mistake that was made early on was um, not necessarily that we weren't expanding to other platforms, but that we weren't even, you know, we didn't have like this API where you could build on top of bare metrics, even if you didn't use, you know, one of the, the platforms we supported. Mm-hmm. So it helped. There were, there's pros and cons, right? So being the thing that Stripe was recommending was a massive pro. Mm-hmm. And so I don't regret that at all. But yeah, you, well, you mentioned um, the, the, the funding you took and your team, it's been a massive success story, and I love how candid you've been about this roller coaster ride. And that you're growing, you take on I think two rounds of funding, and sometime in 2016, 
you look at, at the analytics and you're just, what, like eight weeks of runway left or so. Can you paint a picture for us of, of that scenario and sort of the, the twists and turns that led you to that point? And I, I preface that by saying, so our listeners know, that, I mean, you guys are profitable and fully sustainable now. So it's a real bounce yeah. back story. Yeah. So in late 2015, so this was about 18 months after we, we took them $500,000 from ultimately from General Catalyst, but they had basically Stripe partnered with them to launch this, I forget what they called it, some sort of Stripe platform fund thing. And so they put 500,000 in. And then by the end of 2015, so yeah, 18 months later, we had spent almost all of that. I mean, you know, we had grown, but not as many times as the case with funding, like you spend it a lot faster and you don't grow as fast as you think you will. So but then 2015, we were running out of money. And so we added on to that same seed round an additional 300000 So for 800000 total. Mm-hmm. So that was late 2015. We added that extra money because, we were again, we were running out. Um, and growth had not – growth was still there, but it wasn't, you know, 10 15 20% month over month that it right. had. It's, it's steady growth. And, uh, yeah, it's just – but it's like also boring growth. Yeah. It's like 5% every month. So we added that extra funding. And then by basically six months later, I'm kind of looking at the numbers and uh, a buddy of mine had recommended this sort of CFO kind of, but like an outsource thing. So like we weren't big enough to have a full-time CFO and I'm not a finance guy. And so I was doing the numbers every month enough just to like be like, okay, we still have money in the bank. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I decided to reach out to this guy because I realized, Hey, I should probably pay more attention to this stuff. And you know, a week after he's, he like shoots me a note. Cause he was supposed to just be like, Hey, let's, let's meet back up in a month after I look at your numbers for a bit and build up this, you know, spreadsheet for you. And like a weekend, he's like, Hey, we need to talk. And, um, like, okay, cool. And he's like, man, you've got a few weeks of cash left. I'm like, what? That's crazy. You know, of course, I I would have noticed this. Right. And apparently, so there's a, there's a reason that um, my wife and I, like that she does the finances because <laughs> that's how her brain works. Yep. And mine does not. I'm, the, I'm like the big picture. I'm the, I'm like the dreamer. And, you know, my wife is, she's the very specific sort of analytical person. And that's why it all fits and, together. <laughs> right. That's why it works. And, um, and so with the business, I, there was nobody at the company who was, you know, just digging through the numbers and being sort of, you know, like nerding out on the numbers, you know, major mistake there. And so I realized, Hey, I've got, you know, six, seven, eight weeks left of cash left. And this is, is a bad situation. And there, it was not, I can't go asking for any more money. Just six months prior, I'd gotten $300,000 and you know, we weren't growing. It's not like growth had increased in the past six months. So there was no scenario where we could get more funding and I didn't want to get more funding because clearly that wasn't working. Yeah. So then that's when summer 2016, everything started hitting the fan. Yeah. So I'm sure there were a lot of uncomfortable conversations you had to have with the team at that point. What were some of the changes that that you had to make that ultimately led to this recovery down the line? Yeah, we um, I, I did so many. I had so many phone calls with our finance guy just trying to figure out what what does it take for us to turn the ship around and not for the, well, one, just to stay in business. Right. I mean, that was the first goal was how do we not go out of business? Cause there's, you know, the whole world of startups is full of people either just shutting down or they're forced into an acquisition because they've run out of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that's as simple as that. When you run out of money, you're, you have to do something. You either sell the company or it goes under. 
So how do we avoid that? So that was the first thing. So we started crunching those numbers. Like, okay, well, like relatively easily, we could get profitable if we lay off half the team. And I did not want to do that. You know, everybody could keep their salary. If that was the case, you know, that would have been the the pro of that was, you know, nobody has to take a, a pay cut or anything like that. But we were already kind of a, a pretty small team and, you know, you lay off a number of people and it becomes hard to even just keep building the product. So crunch some numbers some more and ultimately figure out a way to, um, one, cut costs on things like ex, you know, third-party software that we're using, reduce some hosting costs, that kind of stuff. That helps a little bit. But the biggest change was that everybody took a pretty big pay cut. Wow. So everybody took everybody took a 15% pay cut. I took a 30% pay cut. And I think, you know, it's important to remember here, we're not a bunch of 20-year-olds who have, we live on like ramen and like we're already just- <laughs> on, on a couch. Like, right. Like we are, I, I have a family and three kids, other people on our team at the time married with kids. Like, And, and your, your team is re- remote at this time. And everybody's well, remote. Right? So yeah. Um, it's not like we've- well, one, we don't have all these like extraneous costs anyway that we could cut, but everybody's, it's one of those things where like, it hurts for, for to people to have to do that because they've got families to support mm-hmm. and, or even just, even if they're just their spouse or whatever, you know, and, but that was the way that we could keep everybody on board. Uh, everybody could keep their job basically. And we could still um, not run out of money and we weren't profitable from making those cuts, but it extended the runway so that we didn't run out of money right. in you know, six to eight weeks, we could instead hopefully extend the runway enough to get profitable, yeah. which is ultimately what happened within about six months. And so you you were able to keep everyone on board through this. And as I mentioned a minute ago, your whole team is is remote. I mean, what type of culture were we able to create where everyone was that bought in? Because that, that's got to be a tough conversation to have. And, and I imagine in your shoes, if, if people did need to leave for those reasons, you would have to understand. Sure. I, well, that was probably, that's probably the scariest conversation I've ever had for all sorts of reasons. But to me, it was this sort of true test of what we had built outside of the product. So the culture itself, right? Because it was, no one had any clue that this was coming at all. I didn't know it was coming until, (laughs) you know, days before I had had to have the, the conversation with everybody. So it was completely out of left field for everybody. We, we were in the middle, you know, I talk about expanding outside of Stripe. We had just spent the past couple of months doing this huge push to basically expand the platform to support other payment processors. And we're a couple of weeks away from launching that. And so that's when it was like, had our usual weekly Monday morning standup. And I had spent the whole weekend just crunching every number possible, not sleeping and all that. And and just had to have like, yeah, just the worst, most uncomfortable conversation, especially to have over video chat. Oh, yeah, I know. Which, you know, good grief. So everybody took it as well as they could have. I don't, no one ever got angry, which they would have been fine to be angry. Yes, like be mad at me. That's cool. I, I, I dropped the ball there. And I would say probably half the team was like, uh, I'm going to take the rest of the day off just to like chew on this and yeah. see, see what, because they've got their own budgets for their own families that they've got to deal with. So yeah, that was sort of the extent of it. People had some questions about things, but I mean, within a couple of days, everybody was right back at it and pushing hard to, to make it happen so that we could stay in business. 
Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Looking back to when you took the funding, I'm curious, what advice would you have for other startups that are in a similar position and grappling as to whether or not to, to go that route or to mm-hmm. go the bootstrapping route? Who do you think this is right for and, and maybe not so right for based on your experience? So I, w- I will say I'm not anti-funding. What I typically suggest to people, especially really new companies who are going back and forth of should they raise some money is, one, I think most companies should bootstrap at first just to prove that you can make some money. Obviously, there's lots of caveats there. Yeah. About certain, <laughs> certain types of companies just can't, you can't even start to get off the ground without some level of funding. But uh, I do think bootstrapping just to prove that there you have something that someone will give you some money for is a decent start. And then from there... I think it's what do you want to use the money for? So I think the mistake that a lot of people make is that hiring is how you will grow or that hiring will somehow have really fast returns for you. And I believe you spent a lot of your money on hiring as well, right? That is that is where all of the money went. Um, uh, we did not spend it on like, we didn't have some massive office space. We weren't, you know, we were, everybody wasn't like living it up. We weren't paying these just obscene salaries. E- even that, it was just like, We just hired too many people too fast. And I think what people think is that they're going to hire somebody. So they hire some new engineer who's amazing. And then they think that that's going to all of a sudden increase their growth rate within a couple of months or something. And the reality is you might not see any, any sort of positive return on that from a product growth perspective until six, 12, 18 months later from that one person. And that can be the case for any position. And the problem is like you just you assume that we're going to hire these people and that's going to make the product awesome and then we'll grow twice as fast and then all of a sudden we're going to be making a ton of money and it'll be great. And it just doesn't really work that way. So I think what funding is really great for is fuel on a fire that's already going. So say you've got like some customer acquisition channel that works well where you can put in a dollar and get $2 back or something. Mm-hmm. So like that kind of stuff. Yeah, like go for that. Take some money. If you can get, you know, $500,000, pour a bunch of that into marketing and you get back 2 million, 
then of course, yeah, sure, do do that. <laughs> but the hiring thing is where people. It's like the hardest. It's the hardest knob to adjust. You know, you think of like like an airplane control panel or something where you've just got a thousand random knobs and levers to twist. Like that's what running a company is like. And it's the one that you you can't just turn it down. You can't just stop paying people. You can't just all of a sudden reduce their salary to 10% or whatever. Like those things are very fixed. Mm -hmm. And when you put all your money into those knobs and those levers, you, you kind of tie your hands and it becomes really hard to make any adjustments there. Whereas with marketing, if something's not working, like you just stop spending money on marketing yeah. at the end. And I think that's the mistake a lot of people make when it comes to the funding. Yeah, absolutely. So so as someone who's, you're, you're based in Birmingham, Alabama, is that correct? I am. Yeah. yeah. So as someone who's has the benefit of being outside of the Silicon Valley bubble, you, mm-hmm. you wrote a great blog post coming out, all the stuff we just talked about, about getting out of the, the rat race. And I'm, I'm curious from your point of view, what would it take to sort of create a culture that just has more patience in startup world so that we we don't have this growth at all costs mindset. I think that as humans, we have this sort of innate desire to have what other people have, to have what we don't have. And I think that's the case in all areas. So it's people trying to maybe have the same things that, you know, your parents have, but your parents work 30 years to get that. Yeah. And you want it, you know, two years after you get done with school or something like that. And that's the case in the startup world too, where you see some company growing really fast or hiring hundreds of people or getting $10 million funding rounds. And you think like, Ooh, I want that too. And so you start trying to mimic those things without understanding all that went into it. You don't understand that the person who took 10 million in funding is like stressed out of their mind and doesn't sleep. And like, you know, the company that's just hired a hundred people has all sorts of cultural issues. And like, there's just so many things that come with growth of, of any type. And we, we like choose to only see the, what we perceive as the, the positive aspects of it. And we assume like we, that's what we want to. And so, and we want that as fast as possible because there's also this culture of, well, if you don't get there first, somebody else will get there and it's a zero sum game. So if they get there first, the end, you're out of business, which is not the case mm-hmm. um, in any sizable industry. And I, I think like having patience keeps you from making these just dumb decisions and it, it keeps you from burning out. Right. So, you know, I mentioned some when people are forced to sell and or, or uh, shut down or whatever. Yeah. A lot of times that is that's a funding issue, like where they just run out of money. But a lot of times it's also a, a stress. Just they're just burnt out. Like they can't do it anymore because they went too hard for too long and they can't sustain it. And I, I'm, you know, 15 years into like being an entrepreneur professionally, whatever that means. I mean, other, I, I've been self-employed for 15 years and I want to keep being self-employed for, you know, the rest of however long I can work. So I know that I can't do things that burn me out. I just, I can't. And that's not good for me. That's not good for my marriage. And that's not good for me as a dad either. So I I have to make changes or do things that let me keep doing this thing for as long as I possibly can. Absolutely. And like I said, you guys, you're now profitable, sustainable business. It seems like you have a great culture there. You've always been about having conversations and relationships with your customers, uh, which I think is something that's very, very admirable and has probably helped you along the way as, as the company has grown. But in general, 
one way that I think that you're you're constantly giving back, and one reason we were excited to have you on the show is you've got a really unique dialogue with not just Barometrics customers, but non-customers alike through through two outlets: your Founders Journey blog and your Founder Chats podcast, where uh, you recently had our our own Owen McCabe on. Thank you very much for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can you just tell us a little bit about the types of stories you're trying to to tell through those mediums? I mean, you're putting a lot of time into into writing and telling these stories. So what's what's the impetus for that? So, okay. So I think there's two aspects of it. I think part of it's selfishly. Okay. So there's two levels of this being a selfish thing (laughs) for me. Um, And then one other level. So on the selfish side, I think one, I learned the most from talking to other founders. So the founder chats podcast just means I get to talk to other founders who on some level have had some success. So they've got something they can speak to that I think is helpful. So selfishly, it's just, even if nobody listens to the podcast, I've, I've still gained something. So (laughs) so cool. Um, the other side of being selfish is that bare metrics benefits from other founders checking that stuff out Mm -hmm. because that's that's a lot of our customer base. Right. So it's selfish, but it's also, I think there's a certain level of altruism in that people have poured a lot into me and spent time like explaining basic things to me or being really generous with their time and their connections and whatever else. So that system only works if you keep also doing the same. So for me, that's um, the, the blog itself is, is about that. It's about one, I like, it's me giving back, but it's like founder therapy for me (laughs) where I get to write all this stuff out and work out what I think, but I also get to say, Hey, here's how I'm working through this thing that you're probably also working through or you will one day. So it's a way to like keep the cycle going of founders trying to help out other founders because like nobody knows what they're doing. And you know, in hindsight, you might know how to do things when you're a company with, you know, 10 customers, but mm-hmm. like eventually you'll be at a spot where you don't know what you're doing because yeah. you haven't done it before. And so the more resources are out there, well, founders helping other founders out, the more people get to be founders, which I think is great. No, that's, that's totally true. And the other aspect is there are no one size fits all answers to any of these problems, but the more sure. different angles that you can hear how people have tackled this from, the more informed of a decision you can make yourself. Absolutely. So where can our listeners go to to check out both those properties and just keep up with, in general, what's going on with you and Barometrics? Yeah, so um, the blog is barometrics.com slash blog. Um, there's also an audio version that we record that you can check out wherever you get podcasts, and it's just called Founder's Journey. And then there's Founder Chats, which is the podcast with other founders. That's founderchats.com. And then I rant a lot about startup stuff on Twitter. So I'm at Spigford, S-H-P-I-G-F-O-R-D. Nice. Well, we will uh, we will follow you at Spigford and uh, hope to catch you again soon. Thanks, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.